I'm your host, Clapper Editor-in-Chief, Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by George Lewis. Hello. Paul Anderson. Hello. And Rory Marsh. Hi. In today's episode, the team are going to discuss Disney Plus's live recording of the earth-shattering musical Hamilton, Netflix's collection of lockdown shorts curated by Pablo Lorraine in Home Made, and finally, the video-on-demand release of Justin Cazell's The True History of the Kelly Gang. Let's begin with the critically acclaimed and much beloved musical hit, Hamilton. Mother word got around and said this kid is insane, man. Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Get your education, don't forget from whence you came. And the world's gonna know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait, just you wait. When he was ten, his father split to follow their debt. Written two years later, see Alex and his mother bed, ridden half dead. Sitting in their own sick, the scent thick. And Alex got better, but his mother went quack. An acquisition that cost Disney $75 million. The original recording of Lin-Manuel's Miranda's 11 Tony-winning musical is hitting our screens. The rise and fall of American founding father Alexander Hamilton is told through a blend of ballad and hip-hop. Rory, let's begin with your thoughts. Uh, so, I'm a fan of a musical. I'm not, a, I'm not one to shy away from that. Uh, one of my closest friends is hugely into them. I think he's seen Phantom at the Opera at the theatre more than 20 times in his life, which is uh, bordering and obsessive, but, you know, he's the one who kind of gets me into all this. Um, I still consider Tom Hooper's Les Mis, unlike a lot of other people, to be a hugely uh, brilliant uh, film musical, as well as naturally things like Rocky Horror Picture Show. So going to Hamilton after all the praise that's just been going on for, it must be four years since it started, it's won 11 Tonys. It's just completely blown everything out of the water on the theatre circuit. I never got the chance to watch it uh, in the theatre. So this is the only way that I'm seeing it, especially in this lockdown that we're in at the moment. And this is the original recording with the original cast that was done, I believe, at the end of 2016. Uh, yeah, at the end of 2016. So it stars Lin-Manuel Miranda, David Diggs, Anthony Ramos, uh, everyone who was in the original uh, show. And yeah, somehow this lived up to my expectations. I never thought it would, and I'm normally disappointed by things like this because the hype seems to get into my head very, very easily. But yeah, I absolutely love this. It's a three-hour epic about the foundation of America by the founding father, Alexander Hamilton, who's kind of Obviously, I don't know much about this whole area of history, but he seems to be overlooked when compared to the likes of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Uh, but yeah, the music in this is unlike anything I've ever heard in a musical before. It's kind of hip hop. There's extended like rap sequences, which David Diggs, who normally does that, and his co-star who plays Hercules. I can't remember the actor's name, but they both completely nail these sequences. Um, they're just such like powerful performers. And the real highlight here is um, Leslie Odom Jr., who is kind of Lin-Manuel Miranda Hamilton's um, counterpart in this overarching story. His voice, his character is just 
it'll blow your socks off. It's absolutely unbelievable what he does with his vocals here. He's very much a kind of omniscient narrator slash secondary protagonist throughout the story. Um, and that's signposted from the very start. I really like the way that uh, Limo and Miranda wrote this musical, the way it's structured. It's kind of breaks the fourth wall every now and then. And it's a lot kind of more playful and uh, energetic than I thought something like this would be. Going in, when you, when, you, when you go in, you hear this is a story about the legislative process post-Civil War of how America was formed, you know, the National Bank and things like that. You think, Jesus Christ, that sounds dull. But it is just enthralling stuff. There's cabinet sequences that are turned into these kind of rap battle things that are very tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's just beautifully written. The music is fantastic. Uh, and yeah, I was completely blown out of the water by this even though my expectations were pretty sky high already. And just, uh, I, I wrote in my letterbox review that I don't think anyone's ever used the word badass in relation to a musical. And I don't think people ever will after this, but George Washington's entrance in this is, is pretty much the epitome of that. I don't think I'll ever say that ever again regarding another musical. I hope to be proven wrong, but that's the only time I think I've ever said it. But uh, yeah, Hamilton, it's five stars from me. It's not, you know, a film, but as it exists, this is the best possible cast and you're getting the best possible seats in the house. Granted, you're not in the theatre, so you haven't got that atmosphere. But I think the filming's done really well, the way it's covered. There's lots of close-ups. It's very kind of cine more cinematic than I thought it would be. You know, it's not your six-year-old brother's prep school play where he's just, you know, one wide angle for two hours. It's, you know, very engaging. And yeah, I mean, this is, I think, probably one of the best ways to watch it now. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. My musicals for me, I've kind of I've warmed to them as maybe my heart's melted a little as I've got a bit older, I guess. But I have warmed to musicals more recently. This is not the some not the sort of thing I would normally go and watch. But much like you, Rory, I think I've heard so many people just go like, just go and see this. It's one of the most incredible things you you or your eyes will see. Like people's love for this should not be underestimated. Um, and for me, I'm totally with you, Rory. It was like I, I just. It was just sort of two hours, what, two hours, 43 hours it runs. And it was that length of time for me of just watching people at the absolute top of their game. Like the, the passion they put into this performance, the fact these guys have to do this sort of night in, night out on the run. Like the, just the quality of the performances, the music's incredible. Like it's catchy hip hop music in its own right. Um, yet alone sort of good musical music if there is a difference as I said I'm not it's a difficult one to review not being into musicals as, as you say it's not a film strictly but from yeah from my experience of it I just absolutely loved it it just had me had me from had me grip from sort of the opening moments all the way through to the end and I think the performances here are nothing short of superb um, and I think it's interesting what you put my kind of concerns of it coming on Disney Plus were like okay well that's great that's a really good thing for them to do because tickets for this show to see it live are astronomically expensive and do unfortunately put it out of the realms financially for a lot of people that would go and want to watch this. So this is a great thing for Disney Plus to do, I think. Ultimately, it's not they've not just done it out of the kindness of their heart. I'm not that stupid. Um, you know, they do want people to sign up. But I'm with you, Rory. I was also really impressed with the presentation of it as a Disney Plus show. Like, as you say, it wasn't just put a static camera, film it. Like, I thought they did a really good job of it. And the audio... I mean, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of speakers in my lounge and the audio was just incredible. So 
thankfully I've got the, the system that deserves it. And if you've got a big audio system or even a decent soundbar, like plug it in and get it up and running. Don't use the TV speakers for this if you can avoid it because it needs big speakers. But yeah, I had a great time with this. And as I said, just watching a team, a group of very talented people at the top of their game. I don't care if that's repetition. That's what I think. I have to emphasize before I start my little spew that I detest musicals. I just detest everything about them. I hate structure. I hate the narrative. I hate the conviction. I hate everything about them. So going into this, uh, 160 minutes is not my idea of fun. But the way Rory spoke about it sort of gave me slight hope. Obviously, that the week before, we, he saw and, and what Paul said earlier. He managed to, in the space of half an hour, change my whole thoughts on Wendy. So I was sort of like reassured that, well, maybe I'll get something out of this. And my, 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 I am wonderfully impressed throughout this. Like, I, I, I can't state how happy I was that I managed to get through this. I thought it was, I thought it was outstanding, <laughs> which is, if, you, I, I, if someone says Lim is to me, I get shudders down my spine. I just can't, I detest everything about the musical theatre, the whole, whole musical performance. But this was outstanding. I think the performances are just astonishing. David Diggs, Leslie Odom Jr. being like notable highlights. It's a cast where we're four years from it, it which was screened in 2016, well shot in 2016. I mean, the, the casting director of this needs a pay rise, if, a, if, if, it's, if, if whatever sort of recognition Oscar worthy equivalent is for this, if it's a Tony or, or it's on Broadway, whatever, it needs to be highlighted because it's astonishing. The amount of cast members they, they've got here, which are just astonishing for that role that fits superbly is mesmerizing. I love that there's a diversity here, that there's there's a black man that plays Jefferson and there's mixed race people who play the likes of George Washington and, and then and there's no sort of it's sort of like there's a fluid identity of, of colour here that I think's really well crafted. Completely colourblind casting is what they're yeah, going for. Completely and we spoke about that with, with Peter Pan as well. Whereas, as obviously that person's not real, there's no purist out there. I haven't seen a real big fight back of purists regarding this this little piece of history. I know that there's a few issues regarding Alexander Hamilton himself and his sort of political issues within that period. And I can understand why people would be sort of have issues now. I think notably the uh, Tony Morrison detested this. Which, if you ever want to read her, her thoughts on it, I would, I would, well, I would recommend. However, it's constantly engaging throughout for 160 minutes. The pacing and this is like it's like a rocket; it never stops. I mean, it's, it, it's it, with that. While it's completely engaging, I found it, found it to be slightly confusing to witness because it's there's so much material to cover in 160 minutes. We go through someone's life in musical theatre. I found myself lost in narrative quite often specifically the sort of they write recycle the cast which contextually works really well because there's sort of like in jokes in it especially specifically with david diggs's character but I, I found myself to be slightly confused not that i didn't understand it i just i was i was slightly trying to focus on one area and then three minutes later we would go to something else and I, it was slightly jarring for me but the Biggest thing I came away with here, and I know I've just spewed so much positivity on it, but this still doesn't prove to me that Lin-Manuel Miranda 
is engaging enough to be a leading man material. He doesn't have the engagement level and he doesn't have the skill to lead. Now, if you look at the credits list, and, and I'm just going to pull it up here so I can solidify my point. Not only does Min, Lin Manuel Miranda star as a lead character, he also wrote the music, he did the lyrics, and he did the book. And it just screams to me it's year six vanity project of, yes, this is written, directed, produced, starred, edited, and it, so on and so forth, written by one classmate. And I just think particularly regarding David Diggs's character and his performance actually of how multi-talented and how much passion and how much range he has as an actor. I just think having Lin-Manuel Miranda as, as the star to, to, to a Broadway show like this, it doesn't really work for me. I would much have preferred to have seen a more energetic, more engaging and more skilled actor. And it solidified me why I don't like Mary Poppins Returns because it, I just found it to be sickly after a while. Like he's, he's very quiet in the film, sorry, in a film, in the musical theatre performance that is filmed. I just, I just thought that he's a wrong man to lead this, this little thing. But then again, it's difficult to sort of take away someone's baby as, as a passion project. But nonetheless, for, for a musical entity that I was going into hate, let's say, a lack of a better word. I came across. Um, I came from this, as this perhaps might be my favourite musical entity of all time. I just always just bestowed by it throughout. I just absolutely adored it. Um, yeah, I kind of agree with you, Jack, on the Lin Manuel Miranda thing. There's no doubt in my mind that the writing here is just, and the music is just impeccable and he does a solid performance here i i enjoyed it sounds kind of weird but i enjoyed watching him enjoy seeing this kind of come to fruition around him and he was clearly having fun as the character but so was everyone else i mean you talk about david diggs david diggs gives like one of the most energetic charismatic performances i've seen from an actor in theater in ages Side note, if you haven't seen Blood Spotting, go and watch that because that's fantastic. That's another David Diggs hit for you right there. That's just huge. Which he also shows his kind of lyrical talent in that as well, in a very different way. But yeah, I, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda, I'm glad I've seen him in this role because I feel like this is like his legacy, isn't it? This, this stage show, above everything else, you know, above whatever he wants in Mary Poppins and In the Heights that's coming out soon and everything he's been in Moana. This is his baby that people are going to remember him for this is his kind of Andrew Lloyd Webber Phantom of the Opera moment here uh, so he's definitely taking it while he can have it you know the whole thing is you know I'm not going to miss my shot in the musical and this is definitely him in real life doing the same thing uh, but I agree I think Leslie Oldham Jr steals this completely this is 100% his show I unlike uh, in certain films where secondary characters do become, you know, overshadowed intentionally. I don't think that is intentional. I think Hamilton is supposed to be our protagonist through and through. I mean, he's on the poster, he's in all the marketing, it's called Hamilton. He starts and finishes the whole thing. I mean, it's no spoiler to say that he dies at the end, because that's what Leslie Eldon Jr. says at the very start. But, you know, it starts with him and it ends on his death and there's no epilogue, it's just that and he's gone. And then that's the whole thing. It's very much about him. But Leslie Odom Jr.'s character just completely steals the show for me. It's helped along by the fact that his anthem and his 
kind of theme uh something that's called wait for it is probably the highlight musically at least for me of the show but yeah i think lin Manuel miranda he does a great job here but i can't help but think this is someone else's iconic role that he's kind of taken away that i'd almost love to see obviously i'd love to see it in the flesh live but i really look forward to seeing hopefully maybe one day a different interpretation where someone else is this lead role the issue is is everyone surrounding him is just as paul was saying the peak 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 of their talents these are people who've come together at the perfect time given the perfect roles and they're just loving it so much and so is miranda but he's just he's just not quite there with the rest of them musically speaking but um yeah and also talking about length so it's just shy of three hours unlike you jack i did feel the length but the thing about that is i was enjoying it so much that even though i could feel the length i just was kind of bidding it to go on and on and on it's this is not something where make no mistake when you go into this if it gels with you, this isn't something where you'll stop at the intermission and carry it on the next night. This is something that you will probably watch from start to finish in one sitting. This isn't a stop starter. I found myself, you know, even stopping and going to Lille, I was rushing back to just finish it. But um, yeah, that's my kind of two pence worth on Miranda and the length of it. But yeah, it's just a, just an enthralling musical. And I think in the way Disney have done it, is $75 million justifiable for exclusive rights for this one show i mean when you've got a license to print money like disney do maybe it is but all i'm saying is i'm glad that they've done it for us and i wouldn't have had it any other way yeah i was just gonna ask as someone who hasn't seen it i think we all kind of anticipate that there will be a feature film adaptation uh somewhere in the future although Miranda said it will be quite a while because he wants everyone to watch the the theatre production first what do you think of its potential as a film and who would you potentially get to direct it I think this sort of film version well there might be sort of a difficulty between genres and tone I think, I think Stanley Kubrick would have done a brilliant job of this in a more overly serious topical turn, very similar to Barry Lyndon. But this a film adaption of a, a, it depends what they want to do because if if it's going to be sort of a Les Mis Tom Hooper vibe where it's a live action of sorts musical, then I would just get the whole group back and I would do it with a whole diversity topic and I would get. Miranda to do it himself but if we're going to go the route of the Les Mis version with Liam Neeson and as, as, as the star that version where and a, sort of a Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet-esque version where it's more realism and that's a tough one for me I'm not too sure I'm, I'm really cause, because it's, it's a, a very dense subject matter and if all we have to go back is to look at Spielberg's Lincoln, and that's a tough slog to get through, and that, that's touching on some incredibly strong and poignant themes in American history. It's a it's a tough one. It it, it for me, it's all going to depend on what tone they take, and and until that decision comes alight, I think it could be up for anybody. 
I think I'm I'm kind of with you to be honest. I think it's the kind of what decision they make with it and what do they do with it because if cats like if you look at cats for example there's many reasons that cats failed as a film um but i think one of them was the fact that that with for me with cats was the big indication that there was no sort of respect that there were two they are two different mediums um film and musicals are not the same thing so i mean you said like you like i think if you're not used to musicals and i wasn't it's quite easy to get lost in some of the narrative in um in hamilton because it is wrapped up in the lyrics of the song so the, like you do have to sort of pay 100% attention to lyrics otherwise you will get lost here but Cat, Cats is a prime example of just it didn't have any the film had no narrative thrust which did, I mean there was other problems the CGI was a problem don't get me wrong but there needs to be an understanding if they do make this there's no point just I mean there's a there's now a filmed version of this on stage so and it's a very good quality one there's no need to improve on that so for me if they do do a film it needs to do something a bit different rather than just do this again because that's pointless that's where i stand on it as to who makes it i think i mean give it to the team that's made it like they've made something this good i think they deserve i think he certainly deserves whatever you think of his performance in the lead and maybe that's just it might just be a bad night it might be that another night he's he's a lot stronger it might be that you've seen him on another night someone else comes across a bit weaker that's always the difficult thing with with theater i guess um but yeah, I think give give the original team a go at this and, and see what they come up with. But for me, it would have to do something dramatically different to be worthwhile. Um, so I'm normally a bit of a purist when it comes to this kind of thing. I think a story in its pure, in its original form is probably best left as is the majority of the time. Although you know, certain adaptations have swayed me a bit. Uh, I'm on a bit of a weird one here because I would really love to see this as a film and I feel like this could be like an epic on screen, you know, in every sense of the word on screen musical that would expose even more people to it who, you know, were a bit trepidatious about, you know, watching a three hour recorded musical as I was initially thinking, you know, it would be just a wide throughout, uh, not very visually interesting, but I think there's so much potential here to make a kind of, foundation of america epic though i feel like it'd be a shame if they missed that boat and i can sympathize with the fact that some people think oh it's a stage play it's written for the stage keep it as is but there are ways to work around that and make it something special for the screen as well uh jack you were saying about some liam neeson starring idea i think that's hor horrible don't do that that is an awful idea i don't want to see liam neeson i think the cast as is, is fine. We've also got the nice addition of the fact that David Diggs and Anthony Ramos, Leslie Oldham Jr. as well, Lin-Manuel Miranda as well, although I wouldn't want him to be Hamilton. I'd want him to be the only one maybe recast. They're all screen actors as well at the moment. They've done films, so they're you know in that field. They're not exclusively stage actors. I think keep the cast as is. Paul, I agree that maybe the creative team would be good to see take it to the screen. I'm not sure how you know experienced they are in that format because they're very different mediums when it comes to production, obviously. So if I had to choose a director, a film director to do this, I, if you asked me like two years ago, I'd probably say Tom Hoover, but because I love Les Mis, but after Cats, I don't think anyone's going to let him do, do a musical for a while, which is a shame because I love Les Mis to bits, but yeah. Um, Someone who I was thinking of. Who... You're going to say Denny Villeneuve. Give it to Denny Villeneuve. Let's do that. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> Denny Villeneuve would be cool. I'd love to see a Denny Villeneuve musical or Leo Carax or something like that. 
But um, I don't know. It's, I don't know how you guys are going to take this, but and I don't know if he's got the chops to make a musical because he hasn't made anything like it before. But I think Barry Jenkins doing Hamilton would be cool. It's got keep it as this kind of colorblind cast because I think the cast members as they are are awesome. If they recut, I swear to Christ, if they make this and recast the actor who played George Washington, I think his name's Christopher Jackson, I will be seething because he is perfect in that role. Um, Barry Jenkins Hamilton, make it. I want to see it. It is worth, just, uh, noting that, um, it's worth, it's worth noting that um, Miranda's uh, other musical, In the Heights, is due to come out next year. It was meant to come out this year, but it's been put back, obviously, due to COVID. And that's being directed by John M. Chu, who made Crazy Rich Asians. So there is like a kind of a precedent for Hamilton, if you will. I think I think Barry Jenkins is actually a great show. Like I, I could I could see that working. I think Beale Street especially does have a musical rhythm to it and a very keen sense of music in it. Obviously that Hamilton's a, a way different scale, but I think I think with, with musicals we always associate them as their own thing, and because not many of them come around, it's quite hard to to guess who will who will take them on. I, I do think Tom Hooper would be the obvious choice, even before or, um before Les Mis. If you look at his uh, HBO miniseries John Adams, so it's a quite similar subject matter. Obviously not not musical, but it's detailing one of the kind of early founding fathers. So, I mean, I think it will be very interesting to see. I mean, it's probably miles off this this adaptation. I think it will definitely happen. Maybe if Miranda's uh, career spirals out or something, he has always got. It's quite handy to have this in the bag, isn't it? He's got a, he's got the rights for a Hamilton adaptation. So, maybe maybe in five six years it will be here. But I think Barry Jenkins is a great show, actually. My first um, idea would have been Tom Hooper, but it, it is that fact of he, he did do the HBO John Ad- Adams series in 2008, when John Adams is also a character quite um, prevalent during the series. Sorry, John Adams's character is quite John Adams as a character is quite prevalent during this performance. Um, throughout the story so that was the one thing I didn't think he'd probably want to go back in again but it, it, to me it does scream a, a television show like an eight part I don't know dr- historical drama directed by I do, you could get anyone to do it really if it's a HBO series as long as it's um, it's got a, a, a sizable uh, cast list but you could see Benioff and Weiss doing it you know you could see you could see HBO getting the big guns for this it, there's definitely um, it's strange to think that it's now a franchise because I just wanted to hit on one thing first of all. When I said Liam Neeson, Liam Neeson starred in the um, in a dramatic version of Les Mis. That's what I meant. I don't want Le- I don't want Liam Neeson starring as Hamilton. He he's actually he, he performs in Billy Augustus's Les Mis, which is like a, a, a Romeo and Juliet, Baslam and Romeo and Juliet version of the story, where it's it's like a realism with no musical performance. I thought you'd read a story on the internet about them planning to make <laughs> Hamilton with Liam Neeson. That's like what a, I was worried about. <laughs> like a taken uh, Olivia Megatron inspired Hamilton, which would be flash cuts every 12, 12 seconds of just speeches. Yeah. Um, which just sounds horrific. Um, 
but I just wanted to mention just a bit further about this $75 million deal that Disney have uh, acquired Hamilton for. Are we assured that that's purely for the rights for this stage production or is that, is that for the rights overall from Miranda for adaptions and so on and so forth? Because I was slightly confused by that number because $75 million to have one 160-minute film, if you will, on their platform. And yet, again, as what Paul alluded to, the tickets are notoriously expensive to watch this and the original, broke, original production stopped, in, I believe, in 2015 and 2016 with the main cast, such as David Diggs, Odom, Odom Jr. and Miranda in, in their respective roles. So is, is it paying purely to get that cast list back together or is it more of a, we now own the rights to this, we can now adapt this as we see fit? I'm slightly confused because the number alone is quite astronomical for this production. It's a, it's a I, I 75 million is a lot of money. I think it's just the rights at this point. I think that's how, that's how desirable it was to Disney. I might be mistaken. Um, although from I did read there was a start of an article I read somewhere the other day that Disney and Broadway have always had quite close ties, um, so it might be that it might be that Disney then get first refusal. But I think it was just for the rights of the stage show. I might be wrong, which is an insane amount of money. But if you think about if you think about the percentage of people that want to watch Hamilton compared to the percentage of people who can actually see it, I think they could be onto something here personally. Well, this was meant to be to, to come as a cinematic release, and call me a pessimistic and cynical, but I just can't see anyone actually going to a UK cinema chain to go watch this in the, in a theater in, in it, ironically in a theater, as it's a theater production in a cinema. It just, it's just a very strange acquisition for me, but I also think that this is now past the point of saturation. I think this has been purchased a little too late um, for Disney to sort of recoup a, a franchise here. I mean, it's been six years now from its workshop. And obviously two years from that is the production we saw televised and we've seen, we've, we've also reviewed in this, this topic. That's four years from, from now, four years upon now. I just feel like the boat's now sailed on Hamilton slightly. I think it's a nice little piece for Disney to throw out to people who, who, who obviously can't see it during COVID to spend 75 minutes, 75 minutes, 75 million dollars on to acquire, to, to produce on Disney Plus. I just feel like it's slightly just throwing money and burning it against the wall. I just, I don't know. I just, there's something that doesn't fit right. I don't, I'm not too sure what it is specifically. Just moving on from your point about having it in cinemas. Uh, it is something, theatre and cinemas is a very strange idea and something that I never really got a grasp of myself. But I worked in a cinema, a picture house for a year and a half. And I can tell you that the only nights we were ever sold out, every single seat in the house was when we live streamed things from the Royal Shakespeare Company. And the only night where you couldn't get a seat in the house for about a month before the show was Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag when it live streams on a one night only basis. Theatre in cinemas doesn't seem like it's something that major, but even for the minorest things, like we had like the magic flute ballet or whatever that is, you know, I might be a really ignorant arsehole here, you know, I don't know anything about ballet, so, you know, it could be a really great thing. But we had that, which I'd never heard of before in my life. And it's just rammed, completely, completely rammed. To the point where if someone asked me to come to work, I'd say, is it theatre today? And they said, yeah. And I say, all right, well, I'll see you in like next week, because I'm not coming for that. It's too mental. 
the theatre in cinemas is big. I feel like Hamilton in cinemas would be huge because as we were saying, you know, we're getting the chance to watch it on Disney Plus because so many people who wanted to watch it in the theatres couldn't purely for a financial reason because tickets are outrageously expensive. But I think if that hit cinemas and then hit Disney Plus, you know, if it hit cinemas, you know, a month, two months before Disney Plus. So people thought, right, now's the time. And it's a full experience. You get an intermission, two months before it comes out on streaming, people would go, and I think it'd be huge. So I think Disney have maybe missed a lot of their $75 million investment kind of payout there with it not coming to screens. But I mean, the thought of Disney tackling a, a screen version, if, as Paul said, they kind of get first refuse on these things, potentially. I think in a sense, I mean, we talk a lot about here about, you know, how cynical Disney is and how it does do a lot to damage creativity in the film industry, but Disney is just a pool of resources. And I feel like they would make a real prestige feature here, but I'm still skeptical about whether that would be the right direction to go in. Uh, backtracking a little bit to Tom Hooper, we were talking about how he's done George Adams. And when you think kind of prestige film, just block cats out of your mind. No one cares about it anymore. Let's just forget about it. It wasn't really that funny to begin with, so let's just block it out. Um, Tom Hooper is a prestige director. John Adams for HBO, King's Speech, Damn United, Danish Girl, say what you will, Les Mis, say what you will about him. The man knows how to win Oscars. The, the Hamilton feels like it is ripe for that kind of prestige director, very glitzy treatment. And... Les Mis is a very similar musical to Hamilton in the sense that a lot of music, I'm obviously you know, speaking as a naive, a bit of an idiot here when it comes to musicals because I haven't seen that many, but sometimes they're blends of dialogue and music. But Les Mis and Hamilton have one thing in common and is that in that they are music throughout. There's no spoken word, it's all to a tune. And one thing that Tom Hooper has experience in is making that very specific type of musical not only has he done it, but he's done it really well before, in my personal opinion. He's done it really well before. So he would be good for this. But that being said, my Barry Jenkins idea, I'd still rank him above there and Tom Hooper. I think Barry Jenkins, he's got the passion as a filmmaker. He's, this could be his big kind of box office hit that kind of propels him into the stratosphere a bit more. He's a hugely, you know, brilliant filmmaker, but this might be his calling almost this could be his next level step up um and i think that would be brilliant i think his style his as you said uh i can't remember who said but beale street is a very kind of lyrical musical film uh you know in no part due to nicholas Bratel, whose score is fantastic but i feel like barry jenkins could just do so much with this so my dream would be barry jenkins plus original cast maybe recast hamilton sorry lynn but uh you know uh, sometimes these things happen, but yeah, that's my that's my opinion on the whole subject. There, I think we'll be surprised to see where Tom Hooper, as a director, just go a bit further into the zeitgeist. I think we'll be very surprised to see where he actually lands up because I think as much as Cats has been this sort of scapegoat to attack on all fronts, because it's an absolute dire sentiment of you know animation and etc. I think it it all rests on his shoulders. I don't think he's had quite the brunt of it, specifically on the surface, behind closed doors. I think he, he will be petrified of what happens next. 
because the fallout from the animation teams that, that, that said that he, they were completely overworked, he was horrific, he was never really on set, and none of the actors were comfortable. I think Tom Hooper, after making like Oscar bait for, for what, since what, 08, after John Adams, I think we'll all be very surprised what he comes back with and when he comes back, because I don't think, I think the jury's still out on him after this. You can't really, especially in this industry now, you can't really put money into a film like Cats within three weeks, go edit it back in again and then send it back to cinemas. And then it to be like an internet meme from, for, for the rest of its, well, the rest of human mankind's days and expect to come back out with something and it all to be forgotten about. I don't think Tom Hooper would be allowed near anything like that again. Be interesting to see where he, what where, where he lands because I, I agree. Sorry, Jack, I completely agree. No, I, don't think Tom Hooper, I don't think Tom Hooper's getting anywhere near Hamilton. He won't even get within with within a, a country mile of it. I don't think after Cats. Um, I just I can see why like I I can see why you think he would work for it. I haven't seen Les Mis myself. I can see why you think he'd work for it. He's definitely got the pedigree to do it, but I can't see him getting anywhere near this or anything for quite a while. I think Cats is going to seriously damage his career, if I'm honest. But we should we shall see. I mean, I'm just, I'm still trying to think of one director that could do Hamilton. Like, I love, I love the Barry Jenkins thing more, I really do. But I think Barry Jenkins romanticizes his, his, his performances and his characters in his films, specifically with that score, which is, scores, which are mesmerizing throughout his filmography. But I think if you look at Hamilton and you look at sort of the gravitas of that life, it's a very dark, and at times it's uplifting, but Hamilton is not a character you can romanticise because of his actions throughout the throughout the, the whole thing. He's quite a difficult character to, to sort of like on occasion. So I think it's got to be someone who's going to really showcase the terror and, and of his actions upon his family and, and, and especially the characters. It's quite a multifaceted story to that degree. And I think that that's also a, a positive to have of Hamilton throughout. Um, that it it doesn't sort of sway of one person's not an antagonist and the other one's not a protagonist. There are sort of divides, don't get me wrong, but it's a very multifaceted account of, of the political spectrum of sometimes you have to sacrifice and sometimes, you know, decisions have to be made for you. So it'll have to be sort of a director who can not punish his audience or her audience, but it, I'm not really sure... I'm not really sure to begin with this is even adaptable in fact because if, if you take out all the I mean if you take out everything to, to make it a film and you make it a narrative structure you take away that buzz of music like you said Rory there's no there's no intermissions of dialogue it's constant music it's 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 musical theatre a rate of 160 minutes a roller coaster pace if you take out that you take out what makes Hamilton work so then you'll have to do the Les Mis thing where it's a live action rendition. But then why do that? Because the filmmaking here alone is, is quite immersive to begin with. I mean, there's no Dutch angles. There's nothing like, oh, wow, that's mesmerizing to watch visually. But it gets the job done to a standard that musical theater can do. So I think this needs to actually be left alone. I've, I've, I've come to terms with now the fact that I think it's actually unadaptable. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you say that. I can definitely get behind what you think, what you, what you, what you, what you that's, that sounds really rude, <laughs> yeah. what, your, what your opinion is. Um, Christ, I'm coming off as a bit of an arsehole in this one, maybe. 
anyway, um, what what I, I, I can get behind what you think, and I think a lot of people will definitely agree with you. I think that's probably a very popular opinion and one that I can definitely understand. But I just think this kind of birth of America, kind of colorblind interpretation is great. And it's a great foundation to build a film upon. But the one benefit that film has that theatre doesn't is scope. And what's coming in my head right now, I've been talking about Les Mis to absolute death. And if, listener, if you hate Les Mis, then please feel free to just ignore me here. But there's a, there's a bit at the end of Les Mis, uh, like a kind of epilogue, where all the characters are standing on this kind of battlement, which represents their kind of aspirations, what the French Revolution was supposed to be. And the scope is just enormous. And I'm thinking, if you could turn Hamilton, if you could adapt Hamilton the same way as you adapted Les Mis, with the singing throughout and no dialogue, exactly how it is, keep that there, but introduce the cinematic aspect of such scope of the kind of, you know, the war and the politics and you know the courtrooms and everything like that and then just basically expand on what Miranda has made here it's not a it's not an idea of replicating what's here it's an idea of building on what's here and creating something amazing for the silver screen as it is for the theater if that makes sense I feel like it's just too ripe for being just an amazing film musical to skip on that being said they could make it and just fuck it up tremendously because it's just such a difficult balance but when i close my eyes and i imagine a hamilton film i can only see just like the most cinematic fantastic musical but then again you know it's a very slippery slope with this one lockdown has been an unprecedented time for everyone the film industry included homemade as a collection organized by pablo loren featuring 17 short films from auto filmmakers around the world, all united under the same concept. Everyone is at home. Me escucha? Get me out of here! Your Holiness. Your Majesty. Shall we take a tour of the Vatican? It's probably just some local who got drunk and fell asleep on the beach. Art is just a way to force a new perspective. Netflix are releasing this assembled COVID-19 collection on their platform. Is this the cinematic COVID-19 saviour audiences need or another vanity project from the rich? I'll start. Uh, I feel like it's important to say before we get into anything that there were good intentions behind this. Um, it's, I feel like bringing some of the most interesting cinematic voices together from around the world with different perspectives under, you know, in such an unprecedented time to show how creative and I'm struggling to keep a straight face while I'm saying this, but yeah, to say how creative, it's meant to be a unifying collection. I think we can all agree on that, right? Yeah, it's, it's meant to be a kind of unifying collection about how, <laughs> about how you know, we are all in this together and just to get some creative voices to share what they've been doing in lockdown and things like this. But um, I'm going to be honest with you. This was pretty fucking weak. <laughs> I don't want to sound too harsh because once again, I'm not a filmmaker, so I can't really 
speak too much about it. And there is some good stuff in that. I think maybe with the exception of Jack, uh, me and George at least found some good things in this, particularly from Pablo Lorraine and Maggie Gyllenhaal and Paolo Sorrentino and people like that. I think they've done some generally interesting things here. I think Pablo Lorraine's short film, I think it's called Last Call, is just like a very sharp uh, kind of slice of comedy, which I think made the use of the COVID scenario and integrated it into the plot very well. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal makes like this kind of post-apocalyptic, um, quite very, very cinematic uh, short film uh, starring her husband, Peter Sarsgaard, which I thought was very bleak in the kind of best way. It was slightly meandering and slightly dull and a bit abstract, which, you know, it was nice to see, but it wasn't anything particularly engaging. Um, although her talent as a director, you know, is clearly there. And I'd like to see her do something which is, you know, a bit less restricted by the whole global pandemic that's going on. Uh, and Paolo Sorrentino's is, you know, a nice, sweet little funny one. And the director of Victoria, what was his name again? Does anyone remember? Sebastian Shipper. Sebastian Shipper, yeah. So Sebastian Shipper, I thought, was really creative and nice and quite funny as well. But the, okay, so what, what, one of my main issues with this is I'm talking about all these directors who've done amazing things. I mean, Sebastian Shipper made fucking Victoria. This is a film, it's like a, you know, it's a thriller that takes place over one night and it's shot an hour and a half, two hours without a single cut without a single cut, not 1917 Birdman, great films, but editing to kind of master the cuts. It's a single take. I mean, if that doesn't show filmmaking prowess, I don't know what does. Pablo Lorraine, he made Emma, amazing stuff. Paolo Sorrentino made Youth, you know, Lauro, Great Beauty. I mean, I don't know what else you want me to say, but these are fantastic, fantastic directors. And the stuff that they made here just isn't, it's fine. It's fine. Some of it's fine. Moving on to the other stuff, the rest is pretty much shite. I'm, <laughs> I'm struggling to find the words, but I really, really, I watched this from start to finish. And on the surface, I thought there are some fantastic directors working here. I've loved some of their previous work. They're coming together in this collection, which is organized by Lorraine himself and released by Netflix. So a global audience can see all these directors great work and how much, how valuable they are to the system and how much we need creators like this in this world. But, most of this was just lazy, boring, waste of time. I watched it from start to finish in two days as a series. And I thought on Letterboxd, I'll review each one separately. So, you know, if you're even remotely interested in that, go and look at that and you can see some more, less kind of angry thoughts on there. But it just baffles me how Netflix even, these filmmakers are super valuable, but this just isn't good. And I feel like people on the outside looking in thinking this is the best they have to offer. is just a shame because for some people, this could well be their first introduction to these international filmmakers from around the world who've done so much good. And I think it's such a shame that they've kind of pumped this out, released it on a huge platform like Netflix. And this might be people's first and probably last experience with their work. I'm sure we'll discuss this in depth, but that's my initial thoughts. So, so I think with a with kind of a collection of shorts like these, and it's typical with like vignette features as well. 
what the problem with them is that you have natural comparison points in the whole thing so you can easily compare say like one short to another so that that creates problems in you create an easy differentiation between what's good and bad you're constantly thinking well that one's not as good as the other one in this and a major problem in this there's 17 shorts altogether and a lot of them can be paired up but the vast majority of them can be paired up so the first one which is by uh, Ludge Lee, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's the guy who made um, uh, Les Miserables, not the uh, the musical. It's the the, the other. It's a very Les Miserables centric episode. This one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not the uh, not the Tom Hoover one. Uh, the other one. So he he take his. This is the opening uh, short. He kind of takes a drone up and looks at the um, looks at the wide area. And the implications, especially in like an impoverished city, of what this uh, what this pandemic is causing, and I do I think that that short's bolstered much by the the visuals and the and the music, but the la- the last short in the whole thing as well by uh, Anna Lily Amrapour, it's very similar. It's about uh, she kind of bikes around LA with a narration by Kate Blanchett. It's exactly the same. It serves the same purpose, albeit slightly different LA's empty you're looking at this like, massive city being empty but they're so similar thematically so what is this serving so naturally straight away I'm going well the, that one's better than that one and then you look later on you've got Sebastian Shippers which we've mentioned which is definitely one of the better ones here kind of dryly comic look at isolation and hallucinations and then that can be paired up with Christian uh, Stewart Short, which is about insomnia. So it's quite, again, similar uh, subject matter. So you have these ones that are competing with each other, and we'll, we'll get to the really bad ones in a moment. But I think we should remember that, obviously, this is the most constraint they've had in terms of not only budget, time, locations, and all of that, but there's, there's no getting away from the fact that some of them have pulled more out of the bag than others. I think Sorrentino's is, is quite creative using uh, plastic dolls of the Pope and the Queen to create this kind of off-kilter love story. I think that one was that was the first one I watched. I watched them out of order. So but I thought that one, was, that one was quite charming. Lorraine's is probably the best, I'd say. Like a really funny takedown of masculinity, but also the the last wishes of a of a dying man so and i think also uh, rachel morrison's which is the fourth episode i believe which is the shortest one in the collection it's a visual poem in tribute of her son um telling him to uh, a way to live in this pandemic that, that one was quite touching as well and as we go through the order, you for me it wasn't a massive problem because I watched it out of order. But these are majorly front loaded as well. All the best ones are probably in the first six or seven. So after that point, you've got twelve, which is why Rory said it was a bit of a slog to finish. And I think Jack might expand on the the fact it's a slog a bit more. I forgot about Rachel Morrison's one. I yeah, that that was a good one. That was probably one of my favourites. So I suppose I'll I'll jump in here. I'm going to start with the, an overall opinion, and then I'm going to go into individual things because I've got a lot to say. But my my 
my borderline opinion of it all. And there might be quite like, it, this might be a hyperbolic, but I do apologize, but this is generally how I feel. I think this is one of the most egotistical vanity projects that constantly, unknowingly, and unwittingly contradicts itself at every turn. It's the exact same thing as the I'll do better and the imagined folk celeb semi-cell propaganda bullshit that the likes of Gal Gadot did a few months ago. There's absolutely no difference between that and this. So the only, there's, there are three episodes, let's say, or short films in this 17-long saga that feels like it lasts for about six days that are remotely competently crafted. The first is probably Paolo Sorrentino's love story, as, as, as George alluded to, which I think is, is not COVID-related at, at all. And that's a hint of but the other three I like. I think it's a nice little spin on on what you can do in, in quarantine. It's got a cin cinematic edge to it, but it's also quite charming and lovely and engaging. But throughout, it does very little to actually discuss COVID or the social distancing, which I think is quite refreshing. And I'll get onto that in a moment. <laughs> the other episode I quite enjoyed was Pablo Lorraine's short film, The Last Call. But again, has no real direct correlation with COVID and focuses more on a story with notable, notable humor and a wonderful performance. Well, two performances really, I don't want to give anything else away. And the last one I, I sort of found myself enjoying was Maggie Gyllenhaal's rendition of her short story, which I thought was probably the most cinematic of them all. And probably the most batshit crazy, to be honest. Peter Skarsgård, I believe makes love to a tree in it, which I suppose that yeah, there you go. Does. Yeah, you weren't yeah. you weren't watching it. Yeah, I'm 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 sort of like on on edge thinking, is that a positive that that they they went that far? Is that just so stupid? I mean, I mean, anyway, let, let's move on because there's a lot to talk about. Aside from those three films, I'm actually disgusted with this project. I mean, episode eleven, which I think we'll probably get to it as a group is the most condescending bullshit I've ever actually, I've had to witness from a director who I'm not going to name purely because um, I think this might get quite nasty, but the, and, and, and Rory perfectly alluded to it in his point is that these are films and specifically filmmakers that audiences are going to see for the first time. And this is such a poor um, revelation for them to sort of uncover I mean, you've got some names here that are, are really rather big in the European circuit and they've just crafted trash. And I think it showcases what a lot of them are capable of without a team behind them. And the ones that survive are not only sort of auteurs or cinematic dwellers that know the craft, but the other filmmakers stripped away have got nothing. And I think the only positive I, I have when people watch this is if there's any filmmakers out there who feel like they don't know what they're doing or they don't have an idea and they don't have a creative outlet or they don't have an aesthetic watch this come away from it and know that you're you're safe and sound in what you're producing because these are oscar winning can winning venice winning directors who can't string together 10 minutes of a fucking narrative that's engaging half of them if not more of them touch on covid with such a, a pedantic and quite like lackluster voice 
But I found I, I, what was the whole point of this to be made is about COVID and how filmmakers, specifically lives, are being affected by it. I can name two that do justice to that. The first one, which is the director of Les Mis, which starts off looking at how a French suburb has been affected it the most. But then all of a sudden you've got a fucking drone used in it. I'm thinking there's an oxymoronic relationship there. You're talking about a suburb that's been, been affected financially. Then you're filming with a fucking thousand euro drone. And then you look at Anna Lily Amapaw's sort of final piece on it, which visually is quite spectacular. Again, used with a multitude of filmmaking ability, including a drone. And then you, you have this patronizing Kate Blanchett <laughs> voiceover narration about how the, the world is going to change. And you're thinking, oh, okay, this is going for the cinematic route. And then all of a sudden, if you notice, Anna, Anna Lily Aramapos wearing fucking Yeezys, which are like $1,500 a pair. And then at the end of the, of the whole shot, she then steps off a bike and goes into what, a half a million dollar house in, in the middle of the LA suburbs. It's all just a fucking joke, like unbelievable a joke. Episode 11 in particular, there is an Instagram filter where it's, and it just, it's just a void of talent. And the director behind that has made a notable Oscar winning or Oscar nominated, should I say, um, feature film. I just, I just lost to, to know that these people get paid so much to, to, to make incredible pieces of cinema. And then when, when it comes to actually prowess and, and, and making skill and finding skill, none of them have it. I'm absolutely disgusted with, with most of it. The, the Gurinder Chadha uh, thing in particular, right, is a filmmaker I adore. It's a filmmaker that should have a larger voice. She's brilliant, blinded by the light. I love Be uh, 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 Bennett Light Beckham is a national treasure in the UK. To start your, your short film to say that you live in Primrose Hill in London is a, the biggest fucking con you can actually find. Like, the fact that that is like, oh yeah, we, you know, it's been quiet around Primrose Hill. Yeah, because you live in a fucking $1.2 million a million pound flat and your son's complaining about a fucking PlayStation 4 with a, with a television screen. And then, and then it contradicts itself because you actually get emotionally invested because Chad, as you find about her life's been affected by COVID with her auntie and her mother. And then all of a sudden it goes back to the fucking PlayStation 4. And I, I understand like, and also from a filmmaking point of view to say that that filmmaker decided to stylize it in a vlog is patronizing and insulting its own behalf. But it's, a, it's unwittingly not, it contradicts itself on a constant rate. I mean, the David McKenzie thing, I just thought, I'm not, I didn't want to name names, but I'm going to. <laughs> I just, that is, that, if that is not a definition of white privilege, I've never, I, I don't know what else is. Why is a 16 year old girl in, in, that, in, in that short film complaining about what she wanted to do before she was 16? She can still do everything she wants to. She's still out and about with her friends, even in the actual depiction of, of the narrative. So it's just like a contradiction throughout. What, what else have we got here? I mean, Rachel Morrison's one is the most probably thematically rich. It's quite a poignant tale. And, you know, you've got a t a two uh, children in the house. And then you realize that she's in a fucking million dollar, <laughs> dollar um, fucking apartment or somewhere. And it's just like, I just find that these people don't seem to sort of breach the fact that maybe that they're not the people who should be making these films. 
homemade should have been just that. It should have been homemade filmmakers who crafted five-minute segments from all around the world. There's notably, I don't think there's anything from an African nation here. We don't know what's going there. We get a few from from Asia. We get quite a lot from um, Europe, and we get a, a few from the US. But there's no idea here to see the world being affected by COVID. There's no daily struggles. It's people having a fucking midlife crisis at 15 that they'll never be able to play out with their friends again. I mean, it's all it's all very like. We, we last week we spoke about you should have left. Oh, sorry, the week before that. And me and Rory, like we were laughing and joking of how terrible that film is. And we were trying to get Paul, the, the guest at the time, not to watch it. And I think I said it was, it was unwatchable. This is fucking unwatchable. And I say that with absolutely no irony whatsoever. This is an absolute disaster. And wh- whoever was smoking um, while, they were, while they were pitching this and having it produced needs to have a reality check. This is the problem with Netflix as well. And I know I'm going on here and I'm going to have to stop this because not only do I feel like I'm getting a headache on myself, but I'm having an aneurysm. Is the fact that who, who, who the fuck at Netflix is, 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 is signing these off? Who thought this was a good idea? Who in the room is actually saying, well, hang on a second. Is it slightly not con- contradictory to have a filmmaker who lives at Primrose Hill talk about the issues of COVID when you have actual families? You have like, what, 400,000 people in the world who have died. There's 40,000, um, you know, currently... In, in the UK, that even more, you have a hundred thousand cases reported in the next month in America. I, I, I was slightly not to, to say I was disgusted, and I know I've said that multiple times, is an understatement. I'm trying to really find the word here where to, to get my anger, but overall, I think this is an absolute <laughs> and I'm gonna drop the F bomb again, but I thought this was a fucking disgrace. Yeah. I think I've got a bit of a tough job to follow that. But um, I kind of walked into it knowing uh, like 17 short films, uh, knowing that some of them are going to be like personal vlogs. You know, I kind of go in there and I'm going to be patronised a bit. So I, I can take that a little bit. I take more issue with the um, some of the lack of ambition on the parts of, of some of the, the directors. Like Gurinder Chatters, uh, it's essentially a family vlog but there's no other way to describe it that should be on BBC News in fact I think she was on BBC News so that says it all about that uh, I know you didn't want to name her I'm just going to name her because I mean everyone everyone can uh, everyone can see it Nadine Labaki's one uh, that's, that's episode 11 it's, it's called Myra and the Unicorn and it's seven minutes of uh, the the daughter coming in and essentially playing, except she's not even playing. She's talking about playing, just talking nonsense. Like any, I don't know how old she is. I think she may be like five. You know, that's what five year olds do. Most of, if you just give them free time, they're going to talk nonsense. That's perfectly fine. That's what five year olds should be doing. I don't want to watch it. I do not want to watch it. And the the arrogance to think putting an Instagram filter on that constitutes art is is disgraceful. It's absolutely disgraceful. There's no difference between us like clipping a bit of this podcast, sending it to Netflix, you know, experiment when experimenting with the audio or something and going, there you go, there's my eight minute short film, mate. I love my uh, I love my money for that. I think Johnny Mars, 
as well, which is an, another vlog. Although it starts out with something else, then it's just a vlog. So I'm, I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you just, even in two minutes, you can completely undersold the point of your film. Another waste of time. Uh, there's there's a couple of, there's one with a, I can't remember the director. The whole thing's um, told through text messages. I mean, that's never an interesting mode of storytelling, like ever, like ever. I, I think she, considering the avenue she chose to go down, it was a little bit better than I expected. It wasn't good by any means, but it was, it was at least watchable. Uh, there's another one with a child as well, where she's on a, a rooftop, kind of milling around a flat, which I think is the, the most unmemorable one out of all of them. Because again, it's essentially the same as Labaki's, although it's not quite as a uh, pretentious, I would say. And at least there's some merit in the in the use of music. You, you can see I'm scraping the barrel here for for positives on some of these ones. So, yeah, I'd say if if anyone wants to take anything from this, I'd say follow the recommendations. I'd say there's about five out of seventeen that are worth a watch, or pick the ones that sound the most interesting, but definitely, definitely do not waste two hours, 20 minutes plowing uh, through these shorts. Um, yes, I remember watching this from start to finish when I did, and I was kind of furiously messaging the work chat while I was, and probably for the best, everyone except George was probably quite sensibly ignoring me <laughs> in my kind of rage. Um, so yeah, let's talk about episode 11 quickly. Just give my little point on that because I think that was where I went from bored to just agitated, let's put it, to say it nicely. Um, George is right. No one wants to see a seven-year-old kid running around your office spouting off absolute nonsense. That's cute. If that's your kid, that's great. Maybe your family will care. Send it to them. Don't put it on Netflix. So that, was, that annoyed me in itself, the fact that it was just watching this kid run around an office for seven minutes you know as you said george putting a filter on it and labeling it art it's not it's incoherent babble but the thing that pushed it further for me and i don't want to flog a dead horse here after the show ends it cuts to black after the, that's that episode ends it cuts to black and it says so-and-so's daughter came in here and improvised this whole sequence for seven minutes. And at that point I went, are you fucking serious? Because that's what kids do, man. They just, you know, they're in their own little worlds and that's great. That's all part of growing up. That's fine. I have nothing against this kid whatsoever. She's just playing around. It's her stupid dad that's filming her and selling it to Netflix and then saying that she came in and improvised it for seven whole minutes without even stopping. And then underneath it says, and her dad filmed the whole thing without in one single take. And I went, you sat on your ass, on your chair, in your office, and just filmed your daughter spouting incoherent babble in your office for seven minutes, put a filter on it and sold it to Netflix. But I don't even want to know how much money. This is artistic bankruptcy at its finest and should never be seen by anyone. Netflix should have rejected this straight out. It's just embarrassing to everyone involved. There are some here that are fine. Kristen Stewart's has been getting a lot of buzz for, you know, as much buzz as something like this can get. Um, and, you know, it's not for me, but at least she made an effort. It's nicely shot. There's, you know, kind of 
sound that she's obviously edited in. That, you know, I'm really clutching at straws here. She edited in sound. That's a positive, right? Great, yeah. But no, at least she tried. And that's what I can credit with people here. At least they tried. In these limits, they tried. Episode 11 and certain others, they did not try. I'm not going to say any more because I don't want to get too impassioned about a collection of short films that no one cares about. But yeah, all right. Okay, that's me done. So I'm, I'm recharged from both your opinions. I'm going to go back in for seconds. Let's just talk about the uh, episode that you talked about, George, the one with the text messages. Now, that works with a 30-second segment in television or film, but it works as a 30-second segment for exposition. To have a, a segment that's almost 10 minutes about that's repeatedly just text messages with a fucking iPhone ping is so, in, it's just so annoying to listen to that before long you begin to hate what you're watching. I don't want to hear anything and, and to have to hate seven to eight minutes of just a constant fucking iPhone ping that doesn't go anywhere and before long it just turns your brain to mush. Who thought that was a good idea? Who, who edited that and thought, Maybe we should sort of just subvert this a little bit and it's just, it's becoming one nut. N nobody's there. This is the problem when we highlight producers, where it's easy to say, oh, producers just mangle everything. But, but sometimes they need to be implemented because this is just absolute trash. The second one I need to mention, I forgot about, is the Christian Stewart thing. I adore Christian Stewart as an actress. I think she's probably, aside from Amy, Amy Adams and Elizabeth Moss, she's probably one of the best working actresses in the last decade. Say what you will about Twilight, but after that, she's made a conscious decision to make art. Even with Seaberg, I thought she was excellent in. I've never seen the biggest pile of shite with that about privilege, about insomnia. She has insomnia. There's people who don't have a fucking job to go back to. There's people who have died during this. And then you've got an actress of that caliber who is, who, who is specifically in Los Angeles talking about, oh, she has insomnia. She's dreaming. What? What, what a patronizing, absolute travesty that, epi that, that little short film was. I mean, it's just a fucking joke beyond belief. Like this, this is, I, I imagine, with Gil uh, Gal Gadot singing in black and white. This is an absolute fucking joke on all, all, all centers. Then the Dean Labaki one, and I obviously I said I didn't want to say in his, but you just got it out the back. So I'm going go, to start going on that one. The Instagram filter, and I know I'm going to repeat myself here, that is an absolute disgrace. The fact that the, you, you, you've made that of an Instagram filter and then said that your daughter, for seven minutes, has done this monologue, fully improvised, is a joke. What? Se seriously, what? what? What monologue? What direction? I mean, I'm not, I'm not attacking the daughter whatsoever. And I also think that's quite exploitative for people to do this, to put their own family in it. Unknowingly, in 10 years, they're going to have to witness this and think, why the fuck did you put me in this? I mean, I just find it beyond belief that this was made. Truly beyond belief. Like, I am, I'm, I'm livid. I'm seething, to be honest. I mean, you look at Pablo Lorraine's and it's just, I mean, it's competently crafted. And then you look at when it's, it's, it's partnered up with Rachel Morrison's. And as you said, George, most of it seems to come at the first half. And then the back half is it's just abhorrent, like truly. I, I, I still can't get over the, the fact that people thought this was a good idea, truly. I mean, what's the message of this? What's the message? Like, what, 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 it's curated by Pablo Lorraine. Seriously, and I'm gonna get quite, <laughs> I'm gonna get quite honest here. 
if I, if I was a CEO of Netflix, I'd be disgusted this was on my platform. If I was a filmmaker and I'd, I'd put something like episode 11 out, I'd be embarrassed. And I think that's the bottom line of this. This is embarrassing beyond belief. I was just going to I'd love to know what Lorraine, because he kind of, I think it's him and two other uh, people curated this, but the two other ones didn't contribute any films from what I've read. I'd love to know what Lorraine thought when some of them come back in because if he's gathering these in I'm sure they've been given some free reign he's kind of said just do what you want come back to me in this date I'd love to know when he sees Labakis he must be like what the fuck is that like, especially when you see what he's done with his like, there's an actual narrative there in, in something like eight minutes we get to know one guy very well in it and then there's a twist. Not obviously not going to go into it. There's a twist, and it flips the whole thing, and it it works. And in the space of seven minutes, we we get this story. We know we know this bloke's life in seven minutes just from one plot revelation. And Labaki, in seven minutes, I mean, I can't even remember what the girl says. Like, what what happens in that seven minutes? I'm not I'm not saying it. Obviously, they're comparable. One is going to be worse than the other. But the discrepancy in ambition is absolutely shameful on, on some of their parts. Like, as, as I mentioned, Sorrentino, he's thought of a, a thing, like an off-kilter romance between uh, the Pope and the Queen that's not specifically about this lockdown, but it's about a lockdown, isolation. He's incorporated away and two people have been brought together and then you get some of the other absolute shite and I think it's more of a piss take out of the ones who actually tried than kind of on our part because I ain't going to lie I'm not going to remember this we, we kind of stuck it on because it was a new release but Lorraine and Sorrentino and Chipper the ones who've worked hard must be thinking are you because automatically now even though I'm slightly more positive on it than you two, the bad work here is tarnished. The the few kind of bright spots. So for for the ones who've worked out, they're just going to be put under this umbrella when it's perhaps a little unfair, but the bad ones are so bad that it's, it's kind of hard to avoid. I enjoy the, the Paolo Sorrentino sh- short episode. The one thing that does annoy me about it, and that's just it's just a personal thing, is that I don't like the intercon in the intercontextuality about it. Like it would have been quite smart if he would have had perhaps when they talk about the two popes, which I thought was like a, such a strange reference to have because the whole Catholic thing about you know there's a bigger conversation to have there was was very strange. But seeing as this is on Netflix, why didn't he have um, Olivia Coleman voice the Queen? Why didn't he have the, the guy or two of the who played the Pope in the two Popes voice that like you would have just thought that it would have been so much easier to to craft that knowing that it was on Netflix and then you have like I don't want to spoil it but no one's going to watch this so here we go the fact that the big Lebowski's in it you, you know Jeff Bridges character the Coen Brothers film yeah that, was, could, that didn't work yeah it was me. like and, yeah. it, and it, the, the guy who does the voiceover for that did something in 1986 and that's it Where, where's the I just think, like, what was the decision behind that? Why not at least get Jeff Bridges in it? If 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 Sarantino's film got Olivia Coleman in it and it had Jeff Bridges and it also had either Andy Hopkins or the and I can't remember what the uh, what the other actors called who, who plays either 
Jonathan Price, uh, apologies. That would just make it would just highlight it and elevate it to a certain degree. Where like, oh, this is actually quite cool, you know, because of the Netflix thing. But no. And then you have the uh, Sebastian Shipper thing, which is if if it's one there who actually makes an active decision of making something that's actually quite interesting, is that how how he juggles narrative, which I thought was quite interesting. How he how he juggles sort of like three or four characters, very similar to how how we sort of exercised a narrative use through structure with Victoria, but with at least with his episode, and he doesn't do anything like Victoria, I must, must sort of uh, clarify that, but at least with that episode, he does something different. But even then, it's... I mean, you've... It, and, and what you said, George, the, the problem here is that you compare that to anything else. I mean, it's all got the same themes. Anything that has anything to do with COVID Central bombs here, no matter what. The ones that sort of subvert and are heightened by a, a narrative... That have got COVID elements to it or social distancing elements to it work far better. And I think those are the directors I'd, I'd like to see further on. Dylan Hall in particular, I think does a really good job, even though if you look, actually look at the credits, there's actually a full fucking fledged crew doing that. That's not, that's not homemade. That's a, that's a fucking credited um, editor, credited associate producer, accredited um, color uh, grader. That then is just begs the question, you know, is that like sort of disingenuous, the whole idea? Again, unknowingly contradicts itself every turn. There's a, there's another one as well, actually. don't want to point out when we haven't mentioned it uh, yet. It's um, Antonio Campos's one. I think it's called like NMEX. Even at six minutes or whatever, that is unfinished. Like, that was a joke as well. He's, that's probably got one of out of all of them that's got the most potential to be a little bit longer and he sets up this this thing where there's a like a, uh, a body who's played by um, Christopher Abbott from James White washes up on the shore comes into the to this house and he's a little bit weird and then he does absolutely nothing with it it's just like I've got six minutes here I'll fill it with some time and it's absolutely meaningless. Like, can, uh, maybe I missed the point completely. But did he, either of you two take anything from that whatsoever? Nope. I don't um, even know what it's about. What's the point? I don't. What's that got to do with COVID as well? Like, it, it just seems like, like you said, it, it's it's unfinished narratively speaking. And then all, all I remember is that there's two people sleeping in a bed, and then there's a snake. Someone complains about having a snake in the bed, and then there's the worst delivery of dialogue. What do you mean? What has happened? And it, I just. It's it's just it's I'm just sort of losing my grasp of the will to live sort of discussing these films because you are right, George. What was the point of that? What was the point? Like structurally speaking, it's inept. Narrative, it's inept. Performances, it's inept. And it comes from it a director. Yeah, that was about it. Yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, again, look at the Maggie Gyllenhaal thing. This shot by a yeah, that, that was better. Yeah. Definitely. I think. I, I, um, go on, Rory, because I'm disgusted. <laughs> The Antonio Campos one is is probably one I'm more, uh, well, less hostile towards, because um, I feel like I don't know. My issue here is that I feel like I get angered by the people who just didn't even make an effort. As for Antonio Campos, I mean, he obviously got the memo from Netflix or Lorraine saying 
make us a short film for this anthology. It's going to be screened on Netflix during lockdown for everyone to enjoy on Netflix. And he went, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to think of something and I'm going to shoot it competently and I'm going to try. And he tried. Granted, it didn't really work for you two, but he tried and he tried to make something that would be at least intriguing for someone to sit down for six minutes and watch which is far more than I can say for certain other people in this collection. I think the, the compost one for me is like, yeah, he tried. It's still pretentious as fuck. Like, it's like he's set up for six minutes. He's got like a ambiguous ending. Should, should we put it that way? It's like ambiguous and unfinished are two sides of the, the same coin. This is just unfinished. This is this is for people to say like, oh, wasn't uh, Compass's short film like really trippy? It's like no, it was bollocks. Like admittedly, it was like less shit than some of the other ones, but I'm I kind of try and judge each one by its own standards. So, I mean, I'm not going to give it a pass for like not being as totally dreadful as like Johnny Mars or Labaki's. Like it's slightly better than them, but. I mean, that is the lowest bar I think you could ever set for, like, filmmaking. So, I mean, we, we I think we have to try and, uh, like, judge these, like, on their own. Because, I mean, I think after, like, two episodes, you know, there's no thematic thing. I mean, I'm assuming if it does reasonably okay, they'll probably bring back, like, another one and, and another set of assorted filmmakers. I'm sure I know you two won't be uh, tuning in. Probably, probably oh, I won't be either. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, Netflix will probably, I mean, they put any old shit out really. So I can see him continuing with it. I don't think you'll get, I think if they even try and do it again, they say we're going to do another way. I don't think people will sign up for it. I think directors will take one look at it and think, right, no one paid any fucking effort the first time around. Why would I even try to do it a second time? I think Netflix have just, butchered all chances of you know having any decent relations with these directors in the future which is both the director's fault and netflix's fault i suppose for putting this putting this out i was i was gonna ask one final uh, question and uh i think it's actually quite an obvious answer but i'll ask it anyway out of all of these which one do you think has the most potential to be say half an hour or even feature length for me it's it's probably the Gyllenhaal one because it's maybe got the most depth in terms of world building it's definitely had the most money spent on it I think we can we can all see that I mean it's got some like quite notable visual effects in it as well so if I, I think if I had to pick one it would it would probably be that one I'd like to say Pablo Lorenz but I think it works perfectly as a as a short film the one I I, I just to reiterate from from you, George, is definitely Maggie Gyllenhaal thing. The world building alone is investment. I think it has like Swiss Army Man vibes. Um, aside from that, I, I'm no, no, I'm I'm done. Um, <laughs> Rory, you you choose yours, mate. Cause I can't I can't see, I can't go on it anymore. Um, yeah, Jack's gone hysterical for the listener at home here. <laughs> Understandably so. Um, it's interesting because when I think about it, 
I can understand that Maggie Gyllenhaal's is definitely probably ripe for a longer length. I think if they approached her to do it, she wouldn't do it though. I think this is a flash in a pan, you know, home project for her with, you know, in plus crew, but whatever. Uh, I agree with Jack. Pablo Lorraine's is by far my favorite, but it works perfectly as a short. And I think if you expand on that, it would kind of tarnish what makes this short good. This is a good short, I would say. I don't think I'm stuck on anyone's toes when I say this is a, this is a good short. Uh, the only good short, or maybe except for Sorrentino and a few more, but yeah. Um, when I think about one that could be extended, to be honest, if it's in my opinion, I don't, I wouldn't want to see any extended. Um, but if I had to choose one, if you really twisted my arm, uh, God, you know what? I really don't know. Uh, for once, I'm speechless. What about the uh, Sebastian uh, Lelio one? Because oh, I know you love a musical. So, uh, I do love I mean, a musical. That one didn't really, that didn't really work for me because mm. the tune was awful. But I mean, I'm never, I'm never, I'm never not up for a musical. So maybe, maybe Sebastian Lelio wants to make a musical. Maybe that's his way of telling us. So you know what, mate? You put effort into it. Good on you. Go and do it, lads. I'll be there. But everyone else, you can bugger off. I'd lost the plot at that point, to be honest. Um, I do want to mention one thing. I, we haven't actually touched upon it, and I think it's a very interesting topic, and then we will move on because I think everybody here is slowly losing their minds. Is There's one question no one's asked is, who are the filmmakers who turned this down? Because if you look at the list, and Pablo Lorraine has curated this with two other people, it's very European-centric, but within Lorraine's circle... I think there's quite a few reasonable directors here who have turned this down, most definitely. So I'm just wondering, who, who do you think would have, who do you think would have offered it and would have said no, would have stayed away from? It? Obviously, no, no blockbuster director, no, no uh, Villeneuve or, or, or Nolan, nothing like that, especially Tarantino. But there must be some directors here that would have turned it down. Me, for me in particular, I think Steve McQueen would have been a perfect director to talk about this, specifically during the Black Lives Matter protests in the UK. It, that would have been perfect. I can imagine he would have turned this down purely because of, of, of the work he's got on, no doubt. But I bet there's quite a few. I mean, you, why not do? Why not get John Boyega on board and just showcase what he's going through during these protests and then going through COVID? I mean, there, there must be so many filmmakers. Also, as well, there's quite a lot of people here and not directors. There's a lot of cinematographers who do some work here, specifically Rachel Morrison, uh, who is a cinematographer in her own right. So I'll just put it out there just to get some sort of leeway and, and get off the film itself or film itself. Who do we think turned this sort of shit pile down then? Uh, I don't really know who's in Pablo Lorenz posse, you know, but uh, I feel like someone who maybe could have contributed to this. The first person who sprung to mind when he started talking about Stephen Queen was maybe uh, Michael Winterbottom. I feel like he's quite in tune with the socio-political uh, financial aspects of kind of modern culture and i feel like it's missing a it's I, I, i've already forgotten who's taken a part in this but there are no british filmmakers uh, except for uh, david mckenzie david mckenzie yeah. the only one yeah uh, i feel like michael winterbottom could have done oh, something interesting Chad, here dorinda chadder as well oh uh, yeah so we've, like, we've got a few but i feel like michael winterbottom would have been maybe quite well suited for this uh, as he does have an interest in you know, things that affect society. And I'm sure 
maybe in a few years he'll make a satire of it. It's another kind of, you could have had like maybe Armando Iannucci in here as well. Although I feel like he's a more kind of script TV show slash political satire, which I don't think you could really convey in a short film. But when I think of European filmmakers, who I think he might have approached first, those are the two people who come to mind. Uh, what about you, George? I think one springs to mind because I was thinking this, this is the sort of thing that, that French directors would get right on board for. And I thought of a uh, Michel, is it, has he, the guy who made the artist, have it, he's got like the longest surname ever. Has it, Ovicius. He made the artist and uh, Redoubtable. I, I could definitely see him being approached for this. And w- weirdly, um, Carida as well. I've, I've got a feeling Carida might have been approached for this. Don't know why. Just like a gut feeling that he could have been a approach for this. Um, I mean, for who who would I have liked to see? I think Winterbottom is a great show actually, because he can do he can do a lot with very little, as shown in the trip. So I think he he would have been a, a really good um a really good uh, contributor to this. Apart from that, though, I mean. I'm not really wishing for this to come back. And judging by the output, even even some of them, like we've touched on some of them, they are some of them are quite creative filmmakers who've turned out like shoddy output. So there's no guarantee that even people we say would come on this and you know bring out something that um, we'd really want to see. So I think I think the uh, the the argument is kind of futile, really. Not to um, put more of a downer on this, but Netflix have labelled this volume one. We move on, please. <laughs> that's that's why I thought it was come back. I saw it, so I thought, yeah, there's going to be another one in like maybe two months. I th- I think that I think those shots have already been made, and I think this is yeah. volume one, and that'll come in the next month. Also, uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw this critic under the bus, but I am gonna sort of I'm gonna have to sort of notify this. IndieWire have reviewed this for their site and have stated Netflix quarantine anthology is pure filmmaking talent in bite-sized pieces with memorable entries from Paolo Sorrentino, Christian Stewart, Anna Lily, Amipo, and many others. This anthology project is a welcome snapshot of modern times. And I'm not going to throw that person under the bus, but I can just say that is one of the most fucking tone-deaf, patronizing, assessments of a piece of shit I've ever seen and I do I, I think that's quite embarrassing from from a from a critic to sort of justify those comments through through that review. Anyway, moving on, let's conclude now thankfully with Justin Cazell's The True History of the Kelly Gang. Which Kelly are you? Edward. People call me Ned. You're the child assassin. Total tales of you, Ned. Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick, it's a pleasure to meet you. I saw you fight the other night at the Governor's. You're... You're very impressive. Do you box often? I don't care to. Just gonna have a drink. Do you wanna join me for one? No, I don't fancy the taste. What an Irishman who cares not to drink or fight. It's a bit novel. Are you charged me with larceny? No. If you prove to me that thieving's not your only vice.
an exploration of Australian bushranger Ned Kelly and his gang as they attempt to evade authorities during the 1870s. Is this redemption for director Justin Cazell after being in career jail of Assassin's Creed, or this is an extended sentence? So I reviewed this for the site quite a few months ago now. Uh, we're choosing to review this on, 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 the, on the podcast purely because it's come out on VOD very lately. And I think there's an interesting conversation to have. So I need to sort of just add a little bit of depth to this, to the, what's going to come in a second. But I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Justin Cazell from the beginning of Macbeth to the end of Macbeth. After that, I don't know where that filmmaker has been. And I think that's, that's a very telling tale of what I'm going to go into. But I just need to mention that I'm not, I'm not against a film like Assassin's Creed. I relatively enjoyed it for what it was. I mean, it's difficult to break the mold when you're going through to try to do a, a, a gaming film or a film based on a video game, sorry, not to sound like I'm 95. Um, we're going to see a big indication of that. And I know we're going to talk about this shortly. I hope we do anyway about Ben Wheatley's Tomb Raider film. Uh, and if Assassin's Creed is anything to go by, for me personally, it's a, it's a good step in the right direction. That being said, I found this film to, to be a shadow of what Justin Cazell's able to, to, to complete regarding filmmaking. I'm just going to spout some stuff off here and it's going to be all over the place, but I feel that that's a good representation of what the film did for me. So it'll be good to sort of reflect that. I found that the notable cinematography that you found in Macbeth, which was, was quite absent from Assassin's Creed in particular as well, is gone here. It's severely lacking throughout. There's sort of no oxymoronic and, and I, even ironic um, depiction of having such a tight-knit family and then having such a vast amount of land in the, out, in the outback. And you can find the sort of the emotional connotations of loneliness and exploitation there. I just thought that was incredibly flat. It wasn't executed very well. Knowing that Cazell's actually an Australian native as well, it, it, to me, I, I felt like he was lost sort of depicting his own country, which if you actually look in the context of his filmography, this seems like he's going back to, to, to where he started, where after a dip in form, it's good to build the pieces up and how wrong that was. For me, it, feel, it feels like as if Winding, uh, Nicholas uh, Winding Refn's Bronson and Guy Ritchie's Rock and Roller have been thrown together in a punk rock mood, while on paper sounds electric and quite inviting. But on screen, it's like an underwhelming, fractious tone. It doesn't gel together as well. And I think we spoke about it before the podcast, but George, George said it, and uh, hopefully it will go into it a bit better than I will. But it even has punk sort of music thrown throughout. And it just feels like jarring and, and, and tonally oblivious to what it wants to get to. I think that the aesthetic in general is effective, but it has trouble balancing itself out in the poignancy and harrowing horrors of this icon's life. I think made more perplexing is a usage of strobe lights. And, and to watch something like Macbeth and you see this, and guarantee, I'm sorry, to, to, to specifically say it's not a, it's not an organically crafted aesthetic through that film. There's a lot of lighting and, and sort of exploration through mood by, by cinematography that's not organic at all. It's crafted by man. Here, it's just so obliviously bad. It's unbelievable. And it, it, to craft like tension, it just falls flat for me. And again, it's a recurring theme. The intention is clear, 
but the execution is poorly implemented and it profoundly affects the view in an almost visually unwatchable sense. I know that's a hyperbolic again, but going from homemade, I mean, that's the type of mood. I think the edit is massively disconnected. It's too choppy. It's strenuous to cover so much material. It feels like one long unintended blur from start to finish. Now, while that might be contextually appropriate to sort of showcase the life and, and, and tribulations of that character, narratively speaking, it doesn't work. Scenes jumping out of consciousness to a considerable and constant amount, and they don't have a stable connection. Again, the, the conscious sort of element you can argue for, but for me, it didn't work. It impedes both flow and impact. And there's, 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 I'm trying to find highlights here. George McKay's it, it, it's had a good year overall. He's terrific as Ned Kelly. He pumps every drop of, of his veins into the character in sort of a monstrous performance with extending, outstanding emotional range. A quite a lot of accents drop within the, the Australian dialect. This doesn't. And I was quite proud of him for that because I know it's a tough thing to, 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 to not sort of jump into a into an accent that can become like sort of almost like a parody on that verge, but he does well to sort of stay away from it. And he's, he's afforded to craft more of a visceral performance aided by a narration, which often than not, I'm not a very big fan of narration because I think it does uh, what, the, what, the, what the screenplay and performances um, aren't able to. And I think it's just an easy way to sort of hop out of that. And I think, as I said, McKay nails the engulfing torment of a life lived, no doubt. But then you get onto sort of the supporting cast members of Russell Crowe and Charlie Hunnam who show up for bloated cameos. Glorified, I think, is a, too far of a positive notion to sort of throw at this. But their impact undeniably is felt with, with incredible, vigorous and colourful roles that reflect the, the landscape. But just as the film begins to craft momentum with those characters, they're just pulled from the narrative. And then some of them sort of recur back in. More, more often than not, it's gone. You find out nothing of the family relationship because Kelly's thrown away, or Ned Kelly, sorry, is thrown away from that family, family contextually throughout the plot, and I don't want to give that away. No one's sort of aware of, of, of this structure. But you just don't have any emotional connection aside from with the mother, with, with subtle, yet in the same breath, on-the-nose depictions of how she's had to sort of raise this family up. And then you sort of find out things about the father that I felt were very interesting to behold, but were not sort of covered very well. And then that then bleeds into the film without any sort of ideas, if that makes sense. Within the film, it makes, it makes, makes sense. But this is, a, this is a feature, Ultima, that is caught in indecision and ill-decision. And by Cazelle wanting to refresh the aesthetic and go back to basics, ultimately he loses the very... Um, sentiments and prowess of what made him so identifiable to begin with and it sort of feels like he's cracked it takes away what worked and when you take away a director who has such an a, 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 an overly strong iconography and an aesthetic and structure whatever you're left with is just bare bones and just non-interesting yeah so i think i'm decidedly more positive on this than a, than you i think the, the visuals for me actually really worked so uh i think i think the first act well i think the majority of it kind of takes place when a ned's a, a young boy and it leads up to his first uh encounter with violence uh through russell crowe's character i, I think the 
first act is by far the best act in the film. It's got this really kind of oppressive and haunting edge to it. You, I think like the 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 way the trees look, they're kind of bending in, even with this vast space. It it that that landscape does feel oppressive to me. So I got more out of the the visuals and and the landscapes than what you did. I think mentioning the punk aesthetic is really important because that, that's definitely one of the drawbacks of the film because I think the original score, the the kind of haunting strings and the, it's like repeated motifs, I think that works really well. And then you get the, the transitions with um, with punk music. doesn't work at all, but absolutely does not work. And it, it kind of negates the, the point of thought they were trying to make because I think there's definitely elements of, of horror in this film it's a very bleak film so when you've got this kind of i, I can see why they did it because obviously kelly starts out uh, ned kelly starts out quite timid quite shy and gradually becomes more boisterous and obviously by the end of it we i mean i'd imagine everyone knows how this ends so i can i can see why the the music in there but it's it's, it's too jarring for me to to say it truly works and the the other factor is it sags in the middle big time because we all know where it's going to go and it takes so long to get there. So by the finale, you are kind of wishing for it to end because it has to go to these points where it becomes so bleak for Ned that it, it leads him to, to the point of no return, essentially. I, I do think the um the performances across the board are, are really good. I think George McKay is fantastic. I think this is his best performance to date. I think it's far better than his role in 1917. I think he's I think he's brilliant in it. I think Essie Davis is the mother. Uh, is is great again. It's like a kind of really dark character with rare glimpses of warmth there, but she's so kind of beaten down by her experiences with men in particular. Uh, it's it's kind of horrible. To, to see actually and also I think the, the, the other performance to really note from this is uh, Nicholas Holt who turns up, he's essentially a villain which is massively against type but I, I think by the end of it he, he completely sells it and he's you know does the job, he's very much unlikable and the film as it goes along gets very nasty as well, it's it's very grim and it's quite primal. It reminded me of the Revenant mostly, actually, minus the uh, kind of the the surreal elements. But the the you, every footstep and every gunshot feels disorientating, and I think some of the camera work actually matches that. As I said, it does Not everything works for me. Massive pacing issues, but I I think it's uh, while not as good as Macbeth, I definitely think it's a uh, you know a decent entry um yeah i think i'm more with george on this than i am with jack because uh i've got to be totally honest this is a film that i was very much looking forward to when it first uh got announced and it's also one that i'm guilty of kind of falling for the trailer very hard it was one of those ones that i kind of rewatched continuously because i thought it looked like it was going to be the coolest thing ever which it wasn't quite but you know i digress um justin kurzel is someone who 
like Jack, I'm a, I, I'm a fan of from the start to the end of Macbeth. I think visually that's an absolute, you know, feast of a film. I mean, you only need to show someone his showdown with Macduff at the end of that film to just blow their mind. It's like a, it's like a George Miller directed Shakespeare. That's that's what the ending of Macbeth is like, and the rest of it is kind of like a very meditative, methodical, psychological drama in a way. And I thought he did kind of wonders with that. And then I dodged uh, I dodged Assassin's Creed after because I'm not really that's not really kind of my kind of film and. After all the bad press it got, I thought I might as well leave it. But um, and now we come to this one. Uh, I think the cinematography is interesting. I think I liked it more than Jack did. I think it captures this landscape, this kind of wasteland of the Australian outback in that period very well. As George was talking about the trees and everything feels very kind of oppressive and against these protagonists, which makes it feel like a very hostile environment which they're living in. Um, I describe the landscape, this is my English literature degree coming out here, as Paquettian. You've got this kind of, uh, this hopelessness ingrained in uh, the land. And I think that reflects into the characters. They're all very haggard. And um, Essie, is it Essie, Essie Davis, who we were talking about the other day on Baby T. Um, she's great here. I think she's kind of the, the propelling force for all the characters and all the action in the film. She's very much, maybe you could count her with, Lady Macbeth, she's, you know, this propelling force that pushes her, the men in her life forward, whether that be positively or negatively, that's up to the viewer to decide. I mean, ultimately, I think it's negative here, isn't it? But she's very much adopts that role. And I think she does very well there. Uh, George McKay is awesome. I think this is a role that he completely makes his own. He's an absolute like force of nature in this role. Like he completely dominates the screen and chews up the scene. And you could tell he's just been waiting for something like this. It's a shame it's in a film that hasn't been in the public eye as much, but I think with this in 1917, he's hopefully going to get a lot more roles. Uh, I think it's an unpopular opinion of mine that James Bond should be one of them, but we, um, maybe we can touch on that later. Um, so I was thinking about this when you guys were talking about who I would have direct this except for Justin, if it wasn't for Justin Kurzel. And I feel like, I feel like this is a Guy Ritchie movie, to be honest. I think Guy Ritchie's kind of uh, ADHD editing style and his aesthetic and his like brutish uh, approach to the kind of uh, action that he has in his films. I feel like if you mer I feel like if you merged Lockstock and the kind of old England aesthetic of Sherlock Holmes together and put this story on top of it with you know this cast. I think that'd be a pretty impressive and interesting film to look into. Uh, and I just don't feel like Kurzel's got the uh, visceral nature needed to properly capture this story in an effective way. That being said, I don't think he does a bad job here. I think he's clearly got an int a, a interest in the source material and a very distinct approach to this story, as is shown in the confrontation at the end where Jack was saying about the strobe lights and everything. And it's kind of, an interesting one because it's what the whole film's building towards. You know from the outset what's going to happen. And I feel style over substance isn't the word, but I feel like his style gets in the way of emotional impact here. He uses strobe lights to represent this huge confrontation and it does work in a way. I mean, when he's showering down these strobe lights on the actors and they're getting shot by bullets and they're just kids who are just realizing how dangerous 
and how screwed they are. And it's all hitting and it's, it's, it's horrific. It really is. But that style is that abrasive style that he uses in the finale isn't consistent with the rest of the film. So it feels out of left field and it also detracts the emotional payoff of seeing these characters complete this journey, which I think is where he slightly goes wrong because the crescendo doesn't meet its mark. And my final point here is on the punk rock aspect of it. I thought a punk rock take on the Ned Kelly story would be really interesting. I was kind of all for it. I think I wanted more of that in this than we got. Like the trailer has the Stooges playing over the top as George McKay's riding like shirtless, like across like the barren Australian outback. And you're thinking, I know exactly what this film is going to be. And that's, it's another case, this one of my expectations being hugely out of sync with the reality. And I think that's why it let me down so much. But that being said, I think it's a solid take on this story. I think it's got good performances. I think it's fairly well shot. But um, yeah, it's nothing particularly special. I like how stylish it is, but then again, I don't think it's something I'm going to be revisiting anytime soon. I should point out that I think I was really, really wanting to like this. I mean, really wanting to like it. Like, like you said, Rory, what George has said, everything here is, is perfect. You've got Charlie Hunnam, who I, who I quite like. I, I'm a big fan of Russell Crowe. Um, I'm a big fan of George Rickey. Essie Davis is excellent. Uh, Nicholas Hall, and then you've got Thomas and Kenza. There's, there's, there's a lot of talent here. And there's a lot of talent within Justin Cazell with his filmography. But I, I'm, just, I'm just to make my point more obvious. If I if I if I'm watching Assassin's Creed and I'm and I can make amends for that and I can't hear, I think that just goes to show how how disappointed I really am with this. If anything, this shows me that that, that Justin Cazell is easily easily on the cards for a Mad Max film. Easily, the aesthetic, the music, he's got it, no problem. The director who should have done this, which should have been David Michaud, who did The King and Animal Kingdom and The Rover. This this screams something else and I think while Cazell's gone back to basics and tried to sort of reinvent him reinvent himself and I'm not going to echo what I've just said but I think he's reinventing the wrong things and I think David Misha with directing The King maybe a step perhaps in the wrong direction for his career whereas that should have been swapped for Cazell I think as much as I like The King and, and I don't I don't I give this a horrible review and looking back on it if I watched it again, I'd probably bump the score up just as what we've spoken about. There's quite a lot to like. And I think watching it again um, with a new eye would have been, would have been, would, might, might have been better before we, we went down to this podcast. But I, uh, I think that David Michaud should have done this and Cazell should have done The King. That way, I think they're then exploiting their, their strengths. Because this is a Wasteland film. This is a Mad Max film with Nick Kelly in. I mean, it, it really is. It's, it, it's, it's 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 dire. I mean, there's there's no positives to be found contextually within this this world. It's just it's like um just Jennifer, Jennifer Kent's the, uh, the Nightingale. It's just absolutely horrific, but it, it it reflects the society and the culture of what it was back then in a, in an eye that's perhaps maybe too strong for some, but is fierce and and should be, should be well respected. Those two films back to back. Jesus fucking Christ, that would make a hell of a screening. I mean, it really would. I mean, it'd be six hours long, but it would, be, it would be something else. But I think I'm more left just disappointed. And then it, 
after after I see a filmmaker who makes a really good debut and then follows up with something that they're trying to sort of get out of that little echo chamber and then they go back to basics on the third one and it doesn't work out. It just sort of makes me slightly worried of what's next for Kurzel or Kazel. Because if he's tried this at such a distinctive difference, what's next? I, I definitely think at the moment, I mean, I, I like Macbeth when it come out. I haven't rewatched really watched it, so, so maybe I should. I definitely think Kurzel, there, there's, a, there's a cracker coming. He's, he's got all the ingredients there, the visuals. I think he, he, um, I think he manages tone really well as well. He always gets uh, good performances from his cast. There's just one thing at the moment that's not quite clicking, but I really don't think it's far away what whatever he, he he does next um i think if i had to pick one person to do this this might be a bit controversial it'd be a s craig zala you could get that real kind of grimy horrible like, wasteland feel with, mixed with the kind of punchy violence i mean if there's one thing that guy does well it's a uh, it's violence so i think marrying the two things would be um would would be uh, I think it would have been a good fit. Just to push on on your point, George, about Cazell's got uh, got something coming um, up, and possibly in the future that you know all the pieces come together, and then this is going to be very cynical of me. But and I know I know you you'll you'll push back on this, but I just want to throw it out there just 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 to, to also to to the audience as well. But is there a chance that Cazell? hit his heights too early with Macbeth and it's just a downward spiral from now. Have we seen the best of him? Because after t- t- after his sophomore effort and a third outing, I'm deep I'm I'm sort of deeply disappointed with where this has gone. And I've just got this horrible feeling again, but you know, within the back of my mind that maybe maybe we've just seen a director give it all in one go. And that's it. There's nothing wrong with that, but maybe that's it. Maybe maybe we've got another Richard Keller. I think I you think know? it is worth noting that um, obviously his debut film Snowtown got quite good reviews as well. I haven't seen it, but I, d- I definitely I think he's got such a good sense, as I was saying, of, of visuals and tone, and that kind of I think his films the, the the word to describe them are brooding. There's just something murky going on. I just think somewhere along the line he's going to strike gold. It might be. It might be a decade away. Could be his next film. I mean, we don't know, but I don't really say it uh, too often about directors, especially directors who I've seen two films. One of them I liked. The other one, i.e. this one, I thought was decent. So it's not like I've kind of, you know, got something in the in the past to to latch onto. I think there's there's something with this guy that hopefully uh, will manifest itself in like, something that will be rapturously received. It could be a gangster film. I'd quite like to see him do like a gangster film like um, Andrew Dominique did with uh, Killing Them Softly, another Australian director. Could be could be something along those lines. It could be a horror film, like a straight-up horror film that he, he might do. I think he's quite uh, quite versatile. In, in that respect so I mean I'm really hoping I'm really hoping that because uh, I mean I'm, I haven't seen Assassin's Creed 
but I think judging a, a filmmaker on a video game adaptation is quite harsh uh, and I think it happens to a lot of them as well and um, I think writing them off so quickly uh, is is kind of dangerous as well so I, I'm, I'm really hoping this guy comes out with something like really good um, I was thinking Jack was comparing earlier The King should have been Kurzel's film and this should have been Misho's film if I could relay back to Guy Ritchie quickly, I think potentially this could have been Guy Ritchie's film and King Arthur could have been uh, Kurzel's film. Slightly less fantastical, lower budget, more down to earth, more Macbeth-esque. I know it's more of the same that we've seen from him before, but I'd like to see him do something like that just to see if he could you know, prove himself at that wheelhouse again. Uh, I'm always here for an S. Craig Zoller, Ned Kelly film. Give me that any day of the week. I will watch anything that man makes, pretty much. Uh, I'm loving a bit of the S. Craig's all I love on the podcast. Um, but yeah, I think King Arthur was probably stolen from him because they wanted to make that a franchise and it didn't really pan out for them. Uh, but something else that struck me is I feel like he could make, he could do a Ben Zetlin. He could do his own spin on one of these fairy tales a dark spin, not, you know, not a Guillermo del Toro, Pan's Labyrinth kind of thing, but a kind of Wendy, kind of almost biblical wasteland kind of movie. They were talking for a long time about Peter Jackson doing a Paradise Lost film, which never panned out. I feel like Kurzel's got the visual style to maybe pull something ethereal like that off. But if anyone's going to give him the budget to do that after this, I'm not sure. I didn't hate it, but... I think it's a step back from Macbeth quality wise. Just speaking of, uh, you know, <laughs> I do also like Craig is, is, is Alice, uh, love on the podcast. It happens every week just to make everyone happy. Um, but just, just a living in dream world for a second. And we've spoke about this on, on, on a podcast uh, in the past. I would like to see Justin Cazole do a Dracula film in a similar vein of Macbeth. I think he would be really, really well suited to a, a 1930s monster movie. And like you said, Rory, not something that's overly sort of child-friendly, but, but a form of like magical realism that Wendy so, so well um, discusses and, and um, depicts. I can really see that working. I mean, a Wolfman would be, would be pretty good. Um, hopefully that Ryan Gosling thing gets scrapped because it's, well, it's not going to be made anywhere. But I can just, I can see that I just, the invisible, Lee, Lee Winnell's Invisible Man gives me so much hope for that whole universe. And I think it's, a, it's definitely a franchise game. And I, I don't want to digress too much. But you think of what filmmakers can bring to that. Cazelle's most definitely someone. Macbeth has like that magical realism to it, regardless, especially in the, in the actual source material from Shakespeare. So there's definitely stuff to play there. And I, and I just want to reiterate, I, I don't hate this film. I'm just deeply disappointed with it because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Justin Gazelle. I really am. This Australian new wave that we're getting recently from all sorts of filmmakers is amazing. It, it's, it, what they're, they're having a moment at the moment. I'm, I'm so here for it because we're seeing a multitude of, of cinema from different genres that's made with almost auteurish levels of commitment and conviction. And I think... Cazell's on that board. He is. He he is. He's, he's proved it with Macbeth, and he's had a go of Assassin's Creed. But with this, 
it just begs the question of maybe that the idea was there, but the conviction was just not up to par on this one. But I'll be there for his next outing, no problem. Just going to add one final thing. What about Curzo Weston? But I think, obviously, we've got the... I mean, the landscapes in this lend itself, but then if you kind of... Maybe a little bit of a brighter uh, colour palette. I mean, it worked well for uh, Scott Cooper with Hostiles. It was... I mean, if there was ever a, a three-star director before that, it was a, it was Scott Cooper, and he makes a Western. And I think he's kind of undergone a little bit of a reevaluation. So maybe maybe Kurzel doing a like a maybe not even an old fashioned western like a neo western or or so this definitely has western vibes in it as well. So it's, it it wouldn't be new ground, but if he goes all out for it, I could I could definitely see that working as well. Uh, there's a film called Slow West which came out I think in 2014 with Michael Fassbender and Ben Mendelsohn, and I think something along those lines is definitely something that Kurzel will be suited towards. And I'm not just saying that because it's got Michael Fassbender, who he worked with on Macbeth, and Ben Mendelsohn, who's Australian. But I think his kind of marriage between visuals and story and character could probably work very well in that kind of thing. I feel like he's almost like the Robert Eggers of this kind of... I think he strives for legitimacy within the narrative. I've never seen Assassin's Creed, so I don't know how that exactly works. But with Macbeth... The script is as Shakespeare wrote it. With this, it kind of mixes oldish English dialect with what you would say is modern. But um, I feel like something like that he could tackle really well. I'm just I'm just going to come out of this now because I've been thinking about it. And plus, it doesn't help I've been playing Alien Isolation. But I think if Justin Gazelle brought Michael Fassbender with the link he's got, why don't we just why doesn't Ridley Scott just let go of Alien Covenant Two or whatever it's called and give Justin Gazelle an Alien film? I mean, the aesthetics there, the, um, and George, you spoke it's a he's a brooding filmmaker. He loves to play with themes and just brooding tension. You, you can have a, a, the punk aesthetic we can let go. It works for this film, allegedly, is what Rory and George have said. But I think Alien would be suited of him. You've got, we, I mean, we spoke about on this podcast multiple times in the past. You know, we spoke about on, on the last episode about Hannah Lily Amapo's horrible homemade segment i mean she's doing a cliffhanger and then you've got the Safdie brothers doing 48 hours you've got ben wheatley doing i don't know whatever ben wheatley's doing at the time of the week but i think justin cazell would fit a franchise film that has very little expectation and that he doesn't have to subvert but he can put that brooding mentality towards and have his spin on it the fassbender um, connections there I'm sure the connection through Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott is still there. I, I, I adore Ridley Scott. And I'm going to digress to a whole different point here. I adore Ridley Scott. I really do. I, I'll argue for that man every day of the week. But Ridley Scott is making a film with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Adam Driver and, and sort of like a, a The King similarity sort of film about, you know, the, the, the British... Um, 15, 1400, whatever it is, it's been shut down because of lock, um, COVID. But I think he needs to step away from that. And, and Ridley Scott needs to make films that are slightly not as adventurous as the Battle of Britain that's meant to be made. Or, or All the Money in the World is a, is a good idea of what Ridley Scott is, is good at, in my opinion, of making these 
films very similar to his, his, his late great brother, Tony Scott, you know, Man on Fire and Deja Vu, find a niche and hone it in. I think Justin Cazale would be perfect with an Alien sequel. I really do. Really do. I think if, if uh, Cazale got the green light to do, a, to do Alien, I think I'd send Neil Blomkamp like, over the edge. Paul Buster's been trying to get Alien going for, what, like 10 years now? And Kurzel rocks up, steals his thunder. So, I mean, I'll, I'll just give that to Blomkamp. I mean, a fool for the guy. It's more pity than anything, but just, just give him Alien. I mean, it could be total shit, but it may, it'll be fair. He's, he's tried for so long. Well, the fact that you're being Blomkamp up is, is an interesting thing because I, I'm worried about where Kurzel's going to go next. It does scream... Chappy, doesn't it? This for me, for me personally, it just screams a passion project that you've tried to get off the ground. You've gone back to basics, and it hasn't worked. And what happened with Blomkamp? I mean, what that's 2015? Am I right? Maybe a bit earlier, maybe 2013, 14 with Chappy. I, I, I like Chappy. I'm not too. Uh, I'm, I'm fond of it. Let's say uh, from a personal pleasure point of view. But I just get Blomkamp vibes. I mean, it's so interesting you've said that, George, because that's what Kazel screams to me now. Getting it's lost. Worth noting, yeah, I mean it is. The ones so far, I, w- I don't think Kurzel's done anything close to a District Nine. So, but then I wouldn't say he's done. I mean, I haven't seen Assassin's Creed, but I, w- I wouldn't say Kelly Gang or uh, Macbeth are as, as bad as Chappie. And Chappie's, Chappie's not that bad, but I mean, five I, I years after District Nine, you're like, I what think, are you I doing, think mate? Most people have the issue with Chappie, is what I have with. To a history of the Kelly game where I'm just disappointed. Whereas with Chappé, I think that world works within what we've seen before. You can argue. I'm not. I, mean, I can't argue that now. I'm so tired talking talking about um, what career Kazel might have. But I I feel I have the same issues with with what people have with Chappé with with the true the true history of the Kelly game where I'm just disappointed. I've seen two films that I was fond of. The first one more so than than the second, the sophomore effort. But with this, I just expected so much more. To round out Clappercast, we like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Rory, let's start with you. So this week I watched First Love, which is Takashi Miike's latest film. This director who's notoriously made like 90 films in his career, which is kind of obscene, but it's nice to see someone still loving it at the ripe old age of whatever he is. Um, to put it, to describe a synopsis, it's kind of like, um, just one of those like, takes place over the course of a night thrillers, uh, where a boxer gets involved in some Yakuza underground activity and kind of runs around the city trying to clear his name, things like that. Uh, it's kind of difficult to summarize the tone of this film if you aren't familiar with Mike's work. It's just a completely balls to the wall kind of gonzo experience uh, where it's just completely over the top. There are some fantastically gory sequences. If you want to see a gunfight, a car chase, and kind of Yakuza samurai esque people facing off one on one within the span of about 10 minutes then this is the film for you it's yeah i mean it's very hard to describe if you watch the trailer and it's, it looks up your street then definitely give it a whirl i can't wait to check out the rest of the director's work because i've heard there's a lot there to love paul 
So I watched uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for the first time ever. Uh, this is a Frank Capra film from 1939 starring uh, James Stewart, Gene Arthur, Claude Rains, um, among many others. Um, yeah, this is a film about an idealistic senator played by uh, James Stewart. He's like a first time senator, goes to Washington, um, is a very sort of man of the people, man of his ideals, exactly the kind of politician we need in today's climate, in fact. Um, so he'd have my vote for sure. Um, but it's, it's Frank Capra. It's widely regarded as a classic and, and 100% deservedly so. It's just one of those films that the premise of it, the fact is 80 years old, kind of blew me away because it feels as relevant today. Now, whether a, that's, that's probably a strength of the film or a sad indictment of where we are in terms of 80 years of zero progress in politics, which <laughs> delete is applicable on that one. But it's just a delightfully well put together film. Like the direction's fantastic. Um, James Stewart is just absolutely having a ball, just chewing up all the scenery you can find in the um, in the in the, the Congress. There's some really strong female characters written into this, which for a film from 1939 is incredibly refreshing. Um, and yeah, it's absolutely deserves its reputation as a classic, and I can't recommend it highly enough. And finally, George. Uh, so I'm picking William Freakin' Sorcerer, uh, a remake of a French film called The Wages of Fear. Uh, it takes place uh, in, I think it's uh, in South America, depicts the journey of four career criminals who are tasked with uh, carrying unstable dynamite uh, in in trucks across dangerous roads. Uh, it's a little bit rough around the edges, I think, some of the editing, but the atmosphere is great. The, the visuals are very good. The performances are good. And... When it when it comes to the to the journey, trying to get this dynamite, it is it's as tense as any thriller comes. So yeah, it's well worth a watch. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Paul, so you can find me on Twitter at hkcavalier1982 or on Letterbox at hamsolo77. George. You can find me on Twitter under letterbox at George Lewis97, Lewis with two S's. And Rora. Uh, you can find me on letterbox at Rosa227. You can find me both at letterbox and Twitter with the at Jack Luke Sharp. You can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk. And find out social links on Clapper at Facebook and at Clapper LTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.